Okay, so here we are. Let's get going. Let's talk about church history. Now, some of you will be wondering how we're going to begin this. We begin by setting the stage. I would urge you to get your handouts and save your handouts when you are done with this class. You will have an excellent primer on church history, and it'll be free. It just will have cost you 200 hours of your life. So, um... But hey, who's counting? So setting the stage, we set the stage with Matthew 13, 31 through 32. I want you to look at an an audacious, absolutely audaciously bold claim made by Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Here it is. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. That's an incredibly bold man, a bold claim For some fella from Galilee, which is the backwater of Judea, which is the backwater of the Roman Empire, this bold claim made by this itinerant teacher who's got a dozen or so scraggly followers, all of which abandon him when he's crucified. And he's proclaiming that there is a kingdom, a movement of which he is the key part that is going to, in essence, take over the world. Not in a power sense, but in a presence. Presence sense. That's an amazingly bold claim. But it is a claim... That Jesus not only made, but it's one that came true. Witness us in Houston, Texas, 2015. Probably 700 of us in this room spending time studying this. So here's what I want to do. During this series, we're going to examine the whole tree that Jesus talks about. During this first class, we're going to really concentrate on the soil itself. Because if the soil had not been perfect, this seed would not have sprouted and grown the fruit that it grew. So we need to examine the soil. And I think in doing that... Whoa, hold on there, hotshot. Let me see if I've got this straight. This is a Bible study hour, and we're studying history? That, to me, sounds like uh, uh, oil and water. I mean, I I don't understand why we're studying history when we're supposed to be studying the Bible. Want to explain it? Okay. Sorry for the interruption. So you may be asking, why are we studying church history in a Bible class? Who cares? We got the Bible. 
Why do we need to study the history of the church? Let me give you a secret first of all. The first request for me to teach this class this year came from Pastor David Fleming. And I asked him, I said, why do you think that I ought to be teaching that? I taught that five, six, seven years ago, but why do you think I ought to be teaching that again? And he said, first of all, people need to understand, yes, we've got a Bible, but that Bible is a fruit of church history. What is the canon of scripture? What is the Bible? The books that are in, the books that are not in, was a decision made by the church in antiquity. There was a change in thought among the Reformation movement in the church with Martin Luther. And so to examine our history of the church is to examine, first of all, what is the Bible? Who decided what's in and what's out and what was the basis for their decision? And how do we know whether or not it is reliable? There's another thing that happens when we study church history. We will study the division in the beginning of what has become thousands of denominations. And sometimes those divisions happened because of very important issues. Sometimes those divisions happened and with the retrospect of history, looking back at it, we look at it and we say, how silly was that? How silly was that? And so as we do this, we can separate better some issues of faith from some issues of opinion. That's going to become even more important in our internet age. I think that we're seeing something amazing in society as people begin to cross their historical religious tie and start to meld into other religious groups. Because the internet and, and the information age in which we live has, has enabled the world to become a bigger community. And it's enabled people to do a lot more independent thinking. And so I think these are going to be important issues in the future, too. I think they're going to be important to the next generation. I think it's important we not only learn this, but be able to talk about it. Next, why do people do church differently? We go to something that I would characterize as um, um, definitely not high church. It's not as as um, um, open as maybe the lowest of low churches liturgically. Now, if you don't understand what I'm saying, let me break it down into practical terms. You can go to some churches. I've got my friend John Michael Talbot here with me this morning and his wonderful wife, Viola. Hello, y'all. John Michael, by the way, has written countless books on church history that are tremendous resources. Get them. Uh, he'll be here again next Sunday, I hope, and he'll sign them for you. Anyway, I'm uh, sorry, John Michael. Um, John Michael, I, I, Becky and I were at a Greek Orthodox um, um, uh, monastic community, and we had been invited into their evening worship service, evening vespers. And... I'm just some old 
Baptist boy from Houston, Texas. By the way, I didn't tell you. We are on Mount Sinai at St. Catherine's Monastery, the oldest monastery continuously active today. It's been around since the 300s. So we're going into Vespers and like an idiot, I said, yes, we'd love to go in, not having a clue what etiquette is. I don't know when to bow, when to stand, when to say the Lord's Prayer in Greek, when to say anything. I got no clue. So it's evening there. I figure it's morning in the States. So I called John Michael. Actually, we were texting. I texted John Michael. Said about to go to evening Vespers, Greek Orthodox service. What do I need to know so I don't embarrass myself? He, he texted back. He said, no troubles. Just get ready for lots of bells and smells. And he was right, man, they're ringing bells all the time. They got these incense things just burning like crazy. And they've got, and they say, Pater uh, uh, let's see, how does the Lord's Prayer go in Greek? I don't need to impress you, but I could actually do that if the need arose. So, Pater Hemon, Ho and Tois Uranois, Agias Theto to Onomasu, Eltheto e Basalea Su, Genetheto to Thelemasu, Hosin Urano, Kai Epigase, Tonaton Hemon, Tonepiusian dos Hemen Samaron, Kai, Aface Hemen. Okay, I've got him forgiving us, but we haven't forgiven anybody else. <laughs> and we can't stop there because the next verse says, if you don't forgive others, you don't get forgiven. Kai, Aface Hemen, Ta Ophalema Ta Hemon, Hos Kai Hemes, Hafeko Mentos, Ophaletais Hemon. Kai me Ace and Enkes. Yes. All right. So anyway, so, so I got that part down, but other than that, I'm kind of naked on this one. So we go in and it was very elaborate. Well, why do they do church that way? And why do we do church our way? If you go to some churches, they have these kneelers and they're kneeling. You go to some churches, they're singing, dancing and jumping over pews. I mean, we can figure that out as we do church history. And perhaps most importantly, I like to follow the links. It does something to my faith to realize that I'm, this is not just something that was invented in the 21st century or the 20th century. Our faith is not something that we just happened upon or our forefathers did. It is absolutely, firmly, documentedly rooted in history, generation after generation, after generation, from the seed being planted till the fruit that we are today. And we can examine that. And there is a historical record. And all of the links of the chain are there. We're not missing any links. And so I think it's inspiring to see what God has done to bring us here today. So that's who cares. Now, Larry was nice enough to send me a, an email with a Snoopy's cartoon, Peanuts cartoon. Church history. Hmm. When writing about church history, we have to go back to the very beginning. Our pastor was born in 1930. <laughs> Thank you, Larry Burgess. Um, first of all, David was born a lot later than that. No. 
So let's dig into the soil. Yes, the pun is intended. You gave me two weeks of no PowerPoint preparation. I poured it all into today. I've been dwelling on this class for some time. You'll see it gets worse before it's over. Let's dig into the soil and let's look at it. First thing, what made the soil so ripe for this little seed to grow into the big tree? And I want you to realize the little seed, it's It is truly unfathomable that this little seed of a pacifist carpenter by training in the backwaters of the backwaters, who's isolated and abandoned and everyone has left, who nobody believes is going to be resurrected, they think when he's dead, it's over. The women were not going to the tomb jubilant, expecting a resurrected Jesus. They were going to the tomb to anoint his dead body with ointment, spices. So how does this happen? It's not like Islam. This is not a military movement where the leader of the movement commands an army that rides forth that's not what we have in the first century. By the way, we will be studying, we'll spend at least two weeks on, on Islam and the Muslim faith uh, during the process of church history. Because it's relevant. But that's not. So, so how does this happen? Well, it happens in part because of, of this soil. Between the soil and the Holy Spirit working through humanity and, and through events... You have the tree. So here it is. Let's examine the soil that the Holy Spirit was plowing through. First, we need to know the word, the diaspora. And then it's helpful to know about the Septuagint. We're going to throw up a map for a moment. The diaspora. Diaspora is just a Greek word that, that, or comes from a Greek word that means dispersion. And the Jews start out in Jerusalem, Judea, Israel. But as the nation of Israel was conquered, the conquerors would take away the Jews. The Babylonian captivity, they took them to Babylon and other places in Mesopotamia. As a result of these conquerings, many times as the opposing armies were coming, the Jews themselves would flee, typically to Egypt. Seeking political refuge. And so you've got a diaspora. You've got the Jewish movement taking place. And by the time of the church, the Jews have spread from Judea into Damascus, into uh, uh, Egypt, up into Syria, uh, Antioch, all throughout Babylonia and, and, and Mesopotamia, up into Cilicia, where Saul was from, Tarsus, in through Galatia and the Galatian churches, down to Cyprus, all the way up through Ephesus and Pamphylia and, and those other towns all the way through the coast. We know that you've got them not just there, but you've got them in Corinth. You've got Jews present in Rome in huge numbers. And the fact that the Jews had spread out all over this Mediterranean world is absolutely integral to the Christian faith spreading out throughout the world. 
Couldn't happen one without the other. The other without the one. You can't have the Christian expansion we have without it. Not only did they go, but if, if I draw a circle on this map, let's see if I can do that. If I draw a circle on this map for the Jewish dispersion right around there, all of those areas of the world had been conquered by Alexander the Great and turned into Hellenic territories. Hellenic means Greek. So they all had a common language of commerce and trade of Greek for several hundred years before Jesus. Down in Alexandria, Egypt was the world's largest library. And it's in Alexandria, Egypt that the Jewish scriptures began to be translated into Greek versions. And evidently that became fairly commonplace. It's called the Septuagint, but the Septuagint truly means the Greek Old Testament. And there were a number of translations and a number of versions, just like we have a number of English versions and translations of the Bible today. So the Old Testament had been translated into a language that a number of people used. And it was a language that enabled those scriptures to also be dispersed in the diaspora, the dispersion. Now, another part of the soil here is the presence of the synagogue. As these Jewish communities went out, of course, Judaism itself taught you are to come to uh, uh, Jerusalem at that point in time. The temple had been built and you were to do sacrifices in the temple for these various reasons at these various times. You did not sacrifice on the high places. That was idolatry. That was a taboo in the Old Testament. You were to sacrifice at, at initially in the Old Testament. It was at the tabernacle. But that was, uh, the, the place of the tabernacle was taken by the temple. So you've got Jews all around the world practicing their faith, not able to sacrifice except when they would make their return trips to Jerusalem, which they did with regularity. Because they had to do their sacrifices. That's why there were Jews from all over the world in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when Peter stands up and preaches the first sermon that opens the door to the church. And so you've got in in all of these areas, synagogues, where still the Jews would gather. But they would be gathering for worship, for study, for fellowship, not for the sacrifices. And so you can have in these communities, I mean, we go to Acts, and what happens when Paul becomes a, a believer? For some days, this is Acts 9, right after Paul's a believer. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he's the Son of God. And if you keep going through Acts, you will find over and over and over again, Paul going to the synagogues, 
I mean, I, we don't need to spend time with it. You know it. But this is what Paul would do when he went to a city. The first thing he would do is go to the synagogue. So you look at Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas on their mission trip. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia, from there to Cyprus. When they arrived in Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They had a ready place to go. There are a few rare places Paul went where there was not a synagogue. It took ten Jewish men to constitute enough people for a synagogue to be there. So when you see Paul go to Philippi, he meets Lydia down washing her clothes, but there's not a Jewish synagogue, even though there are Jews there that gather to worship because they must not have enough Jewish men. It's the implication anyway. But by and large, Paul's there and he's going to these synagogues where he's got a ready audience. And they're ready with the Greek scriptures. So he can talk to them about Jesus. Who was Paul's travel companion for many of his mission trips? Remember? Silas? Luke. Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote the book of Acts. Paul and Luke and the Gospel of Luke use similar language in many places. Luke seems to have been, in a sense, Paul's Gospel When Paul in 1 Corinthians writes to the Corinthians and he recites what Jesus said about the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Paul recites it using the exact same language in places that Luke did. Beyond a coincidence. And so Paul's got Luke's gospel or Paul and Luke are experiencing the gospel. Now what is Luke's gospel? What does it contain the other three don't? The virgin birth. Makes a lot of sense, too. He's a doctor, right? I'm sure he would have been very interested sitting there talking to Mary saying, okay, now tell me this one more time. (laughs) Not to mention the fact that as a doctor, he would be in a place to talk to women when in a Jewish culture, women would generally not talk to the men if they weren't family members. But certainly they would to their doctor. So anyway, um, you've got Luke. So Luke talks about the virgin birth of Jesus. Now, you might have some people who you talk to who say, yeah, that's a made-up thing by the church. The Jews never really said that Jesus would be born of a virgin. If you look at the Isaiah 7, 14 passage. Here's Isaiah 7, 14. Nope, that's Isaiah 8, 14. Let's find Isaiah. Sorry to say, it's not in here. Okay, man, talk about church history. Okay, here it is, Isaiah seven fourteen. The Lord will bring upon you and your, upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day. Oh, that's 17. I just can't even read. Okay, here it is. Yes, I recognize this one. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, now the Hebrew word for virgin virgin is the word Alma. Oh, can't see it. We can't read it anyway unless you're reading Hebrew. But some people on the internet do. That's the Hebrew word for Alma. And what it actually means is a young unmarried maiden. 
And so some people might say, well, that doesn't technically mean she's a virgin. She might be a promiscuous young unmarried maiden. And that's possible from the Hebrew, though it's a stretch. Because generally they would call such a person something else. As opposed to a virtuous young unmarried woman. But we don't even have to enter the discussion of what did the Jews think that word meant today. Because we can go to the Greek versions of the Old Testament. And see that they translated that in the Greek into the word parthenos. And the Greek word parthenos means virgin. Not sort of virgin. Not maybe virgin. Virgin. So the Jews already had these scriptures in their synagogues when Paul and Luke are walking around spreading the word. And they already know the debate's already over. The debate was determined by other Jews who were translating the scriptures long before Jesus was born. The Septuagints were translated... They started about 250, 200 B.C., but but in the centuries before Jesus. So you've got now the synagogue, you've got these Septuagint scriptures, Greek Old Testament scriptures, and they're all over the place. In the Roman Empire, Roma, if you want to say it in Latin, Roma. Now, why does the Roman Empire make a difference? Ah, good question. Look at some of the delicacies involved in the Roman Empire for a moment. Do you see, if I blow up the map, do you see all those yellow things? Can you see those yellow lines? It's not a vision problem you're having. It may be a vision test. If you can't see it, go see your doctor. But hopefully you can see those yellow lines. Those yellow lines are major Roman roads. The Romans had over 250,000 miles of roads. And when they made roads, they didn't just make sissy little roads. They didn't just go out there and pour some asphalt down. Not that ours are sissy little roads. And I got four daughters. Sissy, it can be tough. But they didn't just make some little road. They had this elaborate substructure and sub-substructure. And they had invented concrete. They had concrete. And then they had stones that were specially shaped to fit in together. The roads were typically 4.2 meters wide so that two chariots could pass. They had armies that they wanted to transport and goods that they wanted to transport all over their empire. So starting with Augustus Caesar... The Caesar who was Caesar at the time of Christ. These roads took on a very conscientious effort for Rome. And the building was amazing. They are still around today. Many of them. You can go see many of these Roman roads. Here's the Roman road called the Appian Way. In, in Latin, via Appia. Kind of sounds snappy. Or in Latin than it does. The old via Appia. As opposed to the Appian Way, but that's okay. Anyway, that is the Appian Way that the bicycler's on. 
outside of Rome. Paul was crucified on the Appian Way. Paul walked the Appian Way. Peter walked the Appian Way. You can go walk the Appian Way. Those roads were built to last. Now, not all of them are still around today. And I'll tell you, some of them are around in disguise. Because the highways you drive on in a lot of that world today are just paving over of the Roman roads. Those roads have been there for that long. So now with those roads, you've got ready commerce. You've got a safety in travel you didn't have before. You've got an ability to get somewhere. The roads themselves had outposts and they were used for the Roman postal system. So it's an amazing thing that was done. Rome had not just the roads. There was the Pax Romana. Pax means peace. So the the peace of Rome. See, up until Caesar Augustus, who was again the Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth. Up until then, Rome was involved in massive expansions and massive wars within itself. And there was a Roman concept that war was a virtue. But starting with Augustus Caesar, he said, time out. And he started this big propaganda campaign called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And he said, there is a virtue in peace because it shows we've whipped everybody and they're scared to death of us. So nobody wants to fight us. And so there was a peaceful time that was enforced by the Roman army. The Roman army was so large, it consumed half of the treasury just paying for them. Can you imagine if half of the U.S. budget was spent on the military? I mean, we spend a lot on the military, but not half. Not even remotely half. But that peace allowed for travel unlike it had ever been before. So you've got the roads, you've got the peace, and now you've got the missionaries that can go forth. And Luke is travel buddies with Paul. He writes up Paul's mission work. But Paul wasn't the only one. We know Peter was in Corinth. We know Peter was in Rome. He was crucified in Rome. So you've got all of the apostles are going out. Doing what Jesus told them to do. So you've got now with Rome citizenship privileges. You could buy it. You could get it by virtue of living in Italy. A couple of uh, fine print points on that, but not a lot by the time of Paul. But Paul doesn't get his by buying it or by living in Italy. He gets it because his parents had it. He's a Jew um, who is a Roman citizen as well as a citizen of Tarsus. So he comes from a a well-heeled family. But with citizenship came certain rights. It's the reason Paul wasn't killed early on. He was able to appeal to Caesar. He was able to use his Roman citizenship to stop the beatings that could take his life very easily. And we read those claims. You read them in Acts 25, 6 through 12. That's his appeal. 
I'm a Roman citizen. Acts 25. See if I can find this. 6 through 12. After he stayed among them not more than eight days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day he took his seat on the tribunal. He ordered Paul to be brought in. The he here, by the way, is Festus. Paul argues in his defense. Paul says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Whoops. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourselves know. If I'm a wrongdoer, I've committed to do anything for which I die. I don't seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Apollo Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. He had the right to appeal to Caesar. And he does. And he goes to Rome. I mean, it's, it's an amazing world. The citizenship privileges. Now, I put a, a book cover up here entitled The Praetorian Guard, A History of Rome's Elite Special Forces. Rome had an immense army, but they had a special forces. Think like... Navy SEALs or something. These were the elite of the elite. They were specially trained. They had incredibly astute abilities. They were smart. They were dexterous. They were tough. These were the Rambos. The smart Rambos. (laughs) Of the world. And the Caesar formed the Praetorian Guard because he wanted these elite forces around him in battle. Caesar would go into battle. If Caesar's got the the Navy SEALs around him, it's a little less threatening than if he has Paul Kettle, who's just trying to make it in the army. Or Newbie Joe, who's wondering what it's like to see someone bleed. He's got the trained best. Now, once Augustus declares this peace in Rome, Augustus starts bringing the Praetorian Guard into Rome itself. And they set up outside of Rome, but they become his personal security force. They're the ones who, some of them incognito, are walking the halls of the palace. They're the ones he relies upon to keep him from a coup. They're his elite guards. They're the most special of the special. I got to tell you, before Paul even gets to Rome, the elite guard, the praetorian guards start realizing how much power they have. So in 41 A.D., It's the Praetorian Guard with the Senate who kill Caligula the Emperor. If the Emperor, the Emperor is the Emperor, but to some extent he becomes beholden to the Praetorian Guard. And they helped install Claudius as Emperor in 41. So you've got the Praetorian Guard... Really, as not just close to the hub of power, but in some ways, the hub of power.
Oh, before I go back, let's go back to that. Let's look at something together. Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote while he was, he appealed to Caesar. He goes to Rome to argue his appeal. He's there and while he's imprisoned in Rome, he writes some letters to the churches, including one to the church at Philippi. We call it Philippians. And so Paul writes this letter to the Philippians while he's in chains. And I want you now to see a verse. Paul says the following at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest of my, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now you'll see in the English Standard Version, if you've got one, a footnote on Imperial Guard, footnote 5. If you go down to the bottom, you will see footnote 5. It says in Greek, the word is the whole praetorium. It's the praetorium guard. Paul's converting the soldiers that guard the emperor. Paul gets released, ultimately, by the emperor. It's Nero. But Paul subsequently gets rearrested, church history teaches us. And under Nero is killed. And then Nero commits suicide. While the Praetorian Guard does nothing to stop. It's an amazing world. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because look at this next. Jewish religious rights. Let's go back to the Emperor Claudius. The Emperor Claudius, if we go to the PowerPoint, I mean to the uh, Elmo, the Emperor Claudius issues an edict. There had been one by Julius Caesar, a little bit different earlier. But in 41 AD, which is the year he took over having been made by the Praetorian Guard Emperor after the death of Caligula. Here's what he says. Tiberius. Hey, this is pretty good. If you want to name your kid something. Look at this, man. Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus Pontifex Maximus holding the Tribunicinian power. That's, I mean, that's what I want to put on my office door. I just look pretty strong. He proclaims, Since King Agrippa and King Herod, most dear to me, have begged me that I shall grant the same right, that the same rights shall be preserved to the Jews in all the empire of the Romans, as also in Alexandria. In other words, so that I would grant to all of the Jews in the Roman Empire the rights that the Jews in Alexandria have. I very gladly acquiesce. Granting this not only to those persons who begged me, but also having judged those worthy on whose behalf I've been entreated because of their fidelity and friendship toward the Romans. Particularly judging it just so that no Greek city shall lose these rights, since indeed they have been preserved to them in the time of the deified Augustus. 
Augustus did the same thing. So here's the buzz. Therefore, it's right that also the Jews who are in all the world under us shall maintain their ancestral customs without hindrance. That's why the Jews were allowed to practice their Judaism so openly. By the way, Christianity at the time was viewed a branch of Judaism. So at the very beginning, the church is spreading like wildfire. It's a legal religion that will change, and that will change soon. But not during the time of Paul. So we've got this, we've got the Jewish religious rites that are out there, and now into that soil, the seed is planted. And I love to look at the way the seed is planted. If we put back up the map. There were churches we know about from the Bible stories in all of those places where I've put the crosses. You've got them in Israel or Judah. You've got Judea. You've got them throughout Syria and Damascus. You've got them into uh, all of what's modern Turkey. You've got them into uh, Greece and Macedonia. You've got them in Rome. So we know about those biblically. But there's good evidence that there were churches outside of the biblical cities. And a good number of Christians already. By the way, if you ever want to read some interesting church history, the first really thorough church historian to write was a fellow named Eusebius. Eusebius wrote in the early 300s. And Eusebius quoted from a number of different sources. But it's so interesting to see what the early church understood to be its history. For example... You might think, well, if this Jesus was really resurrected, then surely, and if the Roman soldiers really had the death penalty for having an empty tomb, then surely Pilate or somebody like that would have been duly impressed. Actually, early church history indicates that Pilate did petition Rome to call Jesus another one of their gods. There are an amazing set of people who were very duly impressed even if they didn't become Christians. Because something happened. And a number of them do become Christians. As we will unfold the history. Meanwhile, let's just take a moment and look at Pompeii. Pompeii was discovered under the volcanic ash. Off in the background of my picture I've put up here is Mount Vesuvius. In 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupted with no warning whatsoever. The gases basically killed a lot of people where they were at the moment doing whatever they were doing. And as it killed them, it then covered them with volcanic ash, preserving them until archaeologists a couple of hundred years ago start digging them out. And the ruins at, at Pompeii are fascinating to look at. Um, I want to show you, whoa, let's go back. I want to show you one. Pompeii had, uh, um, okay, I think I want to show you one. Let me make sure I want to show you one. Yeah. So this is, Pompeii has like tons of graffiti, okay? I mean, there are books on 
graffiti. Graffiti was big time back then. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing to see the graffiti. And the graffiti were like word games too. And so they do all sorts of things with the graffiti. A lot of it is not suitable for an appropriate audience. It seems graffiti was uh, a way for people to say some weird things. So here's some graffiti that was found on the walls of Pompeii. Rotus opera tenet arepo sator. It's not easy to translate because arepo is not really a really good word. But it probably is a proper name in this sense, though there are some other theories. But it basically is saying that Arepo uh, sows the field and works the field. He's a good farmer he, by working hard, turning the wheel, etc. But look what happens here. R-O-T-A-S. You can see the same thing here. R-O-T-A-S. R-R-O-T-A-S. R-O-T-A-S. You see the cryptogram here? You see, I mean, you see the, the, the square? Opera. O-P-E-R-A is the second word. Or if you're reading it down, it's the second word. Or if you're reading it right to left, second from the bottom, it's the second word. Or from here, opera. Tenet, tenet. Tenet, tenet. Then this is arepo, arepo, which is opera, opera. I mean, it's, it's perfect, right? And it's all built around this letter N. And you can take that in, and if you keep the in there and you do a jumble, do y'all ever do the jumbles? I like the jumbles. Jumbles aren't new. You do the jumbles, and here's what you get. You can only make one thing that I could figure out, or anybody else for that matter. Whoops, pater. No stare. Pater, no stare. Alpha, omega, omega, alpha. If you build it around the N, the center letter, of which there's only one, you get paternoster, paternoster, alpha, omega. Paternoster is Latin. It translates directly, our Father. It's the first two words of the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer. If you say it in Latin, it starts out paternoster. In Greek, it's pater hemon. But Jesus says, and the early church practiced saying the Lord's Prayer multiple times each day. And here you've got it in the graffiti. Now, maybe it's a coincidence. Scholars, most scholars say, no, this is a Christian cryptogram. But there are a few scholars who are skeptics who say, there's no way Christianity could have spread that far by 79 A.D. Well, actually, you look at a map, it had. It had spread all over the place. The idea that there were Christians in Pompeii should not amaze anyone. By the way, that same cryptogram is found throughout Europe. You find it in France, you find it in England, you find it all through. For the next thousand years, that cryptogram is used by the church. Because it's just a nice little piece of wordplay.
And Pompeii is complete, replete with examples of this. Okay, so now, you've got the soil, the seed is planted, there are a couple of early pivot points we need to understand, and then we'll have our conclusion, we'll be done. Wrap it up in, in, uh, what, six minutes, so bear with me. First, the temple is destroyed. The Jewish temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans, 68 to 70 AD. The Jews interrupted the Pax Romana, They interrupted the peace of Rome. They rebelled. It was not taken well. Titus goes with his army to Jerusalem. He annihilates the Jews and in the process destroys the temple. Temple worship is over. It's done. Judaism is no longer viewed favorably by the Roman Empire. Now they're a bunch of insurgents, a bunch of rebels. Titus, by the way, uh, this arch of Titus in Rome is built to commemorate the destruction of the temple and the defeat of the Jews. You go look at it and you can see them carting off menorah in the booty that they took from the temple. It's also, if you ever go to Paris, the Arc de Triomphe, that's, yeah, that was the, the basis for the Arc de Triomphe. It's the same uh, thing. So anyway, you've got the destruction of the temple. Now, with that comes a lot of things. And one major thing we're going to see is, is it looks like church history seems to indicate that most of the Christian, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, as the rebellion's going on, most of them are not participating in the rebellion. Based on Jesus' prophetic word, Matthew 24 especially, they think it's time to flee and, and they're not going to rebel against Rome. So the Christians leave and the, the, the Jews that are left after this rebellion are so upset they rewrite their Jewish prayers and make it blasphemous to believe in Jesus. The sect that had been tolerated is no longer to be tolerated. And you see a sharp schism between Judaism and Christianity after this. And Christianity starts taking more and more of a Greek bent and less and less of a Hebrew bent. And we'll look at that and discuss that. Another early pivot point is the apostles dying. Starting with James in 44 AD, ending with John somewhere around 100 AD. As the apostles die and and start dying, that's when the the writings of the apostles start being collected. When a recognition for apostolic authority to continue in the church is made apparent. And so you've got the first generation appointing a second generation, appointing a third generation... Collecting the writings, and you've got the birth of the church. Historical, growing out of the church, biblical. And so that's what we're going to do. So next week, we're going to look at one of the letters that was written by a bishop, an elder of Rome. Bishop written to the church at Corinth. And it's an early enough letter, it was actually written before our Gospel of John. It was written before the book of Revelation. 
It was written early in the church history, and it's interesting because it gives us insight into a number of different areas, from the Bible itself to the practice of the early church. We've got so many fun things planned during this series. We've got Pastor David as as arranged with us. We're going to be studying the Eucharist, communion in the early church. We'll take communion in here that Sunday with Pastor David while we study it. It'll be wonderful. So anyway, let's do that. But meanwhile, let's look at our points for home or fruit for home this, this series, at least this week. I told you it got worse. Fruit for home. Fruit number one, God doesn't make bold overstatements. You remember we looked at that uh, Matthew 13 passage earlier? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all. The birds will nest in the branches. That's a bold statement, but it's not a bold overstatement. God doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't say things. He doesn't do. And that's a marvelous point for me in my life because he's made promises to me. And I'm so glad he can keep them. And, and I lament the fact that I take them for granted so many times because I know he'll keep them. And I shouldn't. I should be amazed. Second fruit. Ooh, get rid of that. That's just not working good at all. Okay, that second fruit that you can't read says... God has exquisite timing. Think about how that soil was perfect. Paul says in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God, it wasn't, hey, it's going to happen this week. Okay, cool. And you want to talk about planned pregnancy. This one was planned before the beginning of time. God converged, worked through the world to bring to a convergent point the soil into which that seed could be planted to produce the tree that is uniquely here. That could not be here had it been done at any other time. It's a magnificent thing. And then the third thing I would tell you is God shows ultimate love in the cross. We looked at the paternoster. The paternoster, if we go back to the paternoster, can we go back to the Elmo for a moment? You see it's in the shape of the cross because you've got to keep the end. It's, it's a cross. The only way you get the, the jumble undone is with the cross because there's only one end. It's, it's forced. The cross was very important. It was the ultimate show of God's love. If we go back to the PowerPoint, The Ephesians passage where Paul talks about the great love of God shown in Christ. Look at how he says it. He says, no height, no depth, no breadth or length. And he's got a cross shape in his own words. That's the core love of God. God shows ultimate love to us in the cross and it changes my life and I pray it changes yours. Now, if you're joining us on our memory challenge next week, try to have memorized by next Sunday, 1 John chapter 1, the first two verses. Not hard, two verses. Two verses. Got it, Blake? All right, pray with me, please. Lord, I ask you to bless us in our study. I ask you to bless each person who hears this. I pray that we will all be amazed at your magnificent plan 
for your kingdom. Lord, we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that we will play our right role in that even as we stand amazed at the way your hand works beyond us. We worship you. In Jesus, through his cross, we humbly pray. Amen. Thank you.